We are moving into a season of intensive disciple-making, a focus on it like we've never had before. I, and I, I know that you'd be interested to know of, of a work of disciple-making that you've already been a part of. That you may not even think of it in those terms, but there's one young woman that you discipled as a church. Her name is Rachel Toon. She was born here. She grew up here. You sent her off. You continued to pray for her and support her as she headed for seminary. This last week was her first week of classes. Well, this morning, she just preached for the first time. She preached at Wyndham Presbyterian Church in New Hampshire, preached two services. I don't know how it went, but I bet I know how it went. But I, I, I did have a conversation or two with her this last week as she got a chance to taste what it's like to proclaim God's word about the incarnation of Jesus. She told me, Daddy, when I got to the top of Mount Rainier this summer, I realized that the God who created this mountain would have huffed and puffed his way up the mountain with me when he came to earth. And I said, that'll preach. And I think she preached it. So anyway, I want you to know that. I'll, I'll give you a link if you want to in my e-bulletin this week so you have a chance to, to hear a, a product of your church, a, a disciple-making of your church. Last week, I introduced to you my mother-in-law. And uh, I, I introduced along with her, her four octogenarian friends who had come up here for an adventure. Mm. And, um, and part of that adventure, my, my wife Cindy took them to the beach uh, for part of their adventure was to take their rental car out on the beach and drive on the beach, which is pretty fun and pretty exciting and pretty Washington. They were driving along this uh, carload of 80-year-olds, and suddenly the driver whose name was, is Mickey, she screamed, Donut! And she cranked the wheel and began to spin around on the sand. Isn't that awesome? She did it two more times. Cindy said, I kept wanting to get my phone out to get a picture of it. I never believed she'd keep doing it. But this carload of 80-year-olds who were hooping and, and hollering, and Cindy can't believe her eyes. It was very exciting and very surprising. There's a sense in which we are going to crank the wheel and gun it as a church. That's what I think we're going into. We're going to crank the wheel and we're going to gun it. And it's going to be exciting this new season. It's going to be uh, surprising. And for some, it's going to be a little bit scary. We're going to find our, our, our worlds are spinning a little bit when we begin to take seriously what Christ has called us to be. But man, it's going to be good. And I hope you're with me. I hope you're with us as we're making this journey of disciple-making together. And I just need to, to tell you that, the, especially today, um, we're, we're digging into some hard stuff. And it is not infrequently that your pastors ask a lot of you. You don't come here for fluff. You come, you burrow in, you read the Word, and you really pay attention. This is one of those mornings. I feel that the things that the Lord has placed on my heart are really essential for us to get. We're going to do a little backtracking, a little review, more than usual. And I just want to ask you to really buckle up and, and work with me to hear what God wants to say. Are you ready to do that this morning? I know you are. That's the kind of church you are. So I'm going to thank God for that and pray right now. Lord, would your word be upon us? Would your word be upon our hearts? Your spirit guide us as we walk together through this important idea of disciple-making. We cannot do it without you, and so we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started out at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was in obscurity, in anonymity, in a podunk little town called Nazareth for 30 years in his, in his daddy's carpenter shop. But suddenly, he appears on the scene, and he appears in a magnificent way with, with a command. 
And we were introduced to that command last week in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. You remember what the command was? What was, what was the command? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I reminded you great Greek scholars what repent means. What does it mean? Turn around. That's repent. Repent means that you're going one direction. You stop and you turn around. Jesus says, repent. Stop. Turn around. And I got to tell you, this is the start of Christian faith. If you don't do this, you're not going to get anywhere. If you cannot understand that the direction you're walking, the way you're going does not lead to life. If you cannot hear the call of Christ that says, stop behaving, stop speaking, stop spending your money, stop treating others the way you think you should, I want you to stop and turn around and go another way. If you do not do that, we will not know real life. Jesus says, stop. You're walking in the wrong direction. For the sake of your own life, stop and turn around. Why? Because he says, the kingdom of heaven is near That's churchy phrases that we use all of the time. But what it means is that what God is doing in his heaven, he wants to do here on earth. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, God's reality is here. It is near you. Your way, the way you are going right now, misses the best of life. But the kingdom of heaven is so close that it wants to break through. And I want you to experience that, Jesus says. One of the churches I really wanted to see in Paris is a church called Saint-Chapelle. Saint-Chapelle is famous. It's a Gothic cathedral that was built in a relatively short period of time, like six years. Normally it took two centuries to build a church, but about six years. And it's most famous for this. Isn't that spectacular? And aren't you glad we have screens and we can actually see that thing? The, The most spectacular stained glass windows in the world. I wanted to see that. One evening after we had been on a particular exhausting walk, we came back to the hotel and we sat down and I was just reviewing where we had gone that day. And I realized to my chagrin, we were right next to Saint-Chapelle. If we had turned left instead of turning right and gone one block, we would have been at Saint-Chapelle. We were that close to that glory and we missed it. And in fact, because of our schedule, we never did get back to it. What? Yes, right. What a shame, right? And that's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is close. It is that close. You don't want to miss it. Too many of us don't really understand the glorious life that waits for us right now in the other direction. The kingdom of heaven is near, he says. You think it's far away. You think it's up there. You think it's a reward for when you die. But Jesus says, no, it is here. It is close. Just turn around. And you're going to see it. How desperately some of us need to take our eyes off of this world and turn around and discover real life, glorious, kingdom-breaking life. And I wonder if that could be you today. But if we repent and if we turn around, then where do we go? Where do we walk? If the way we're walking is not the right way, how do we know what the right way to walk is? What's the answer? Jesus says, come, follow me. If the way you're walking is not the right way, he says, turn around, come, and I will show you what I would have given to have a guide in Paris who said, turn left. Come follow me. And I missed out. Don't you want to follow someone who knows better than you do where you ought to go? Jesus said, come follow me. 
That was his invitation to me this summer in a surprising way, as I shared last week. I really thought that my sabbatical was going to be all about reading and studying and planning for this great initiative in the life of our church. And I, I, dis- I discovered to my surprise that God instead wanted to shake me up about my own discipleship. The Lord, in the midst of my travels, convicted me of what a pagan traveler I am. When I am on the road, there's something that comes out in me that I don't like. And he convicted me of that, of how surly and and caustic I can be, and how little evidence I can supply at times that I really am a follower of Jesus when I'm on the road. I know that you've had times when the Spirit convicts you of something, and it cut me to the quick. It cut me to the quick to realize the hypocrisy of my life in this segment of my life. In dealing with hotels or airlines or, or crowds or whatever else it was that irritated me or inconvenienced me. And the Lord in His grace convicted me of that. He said, stop. Turn away from that. And so I spent my sabbatical surprisingly not so much focused on planning and preparation as I did trying to follow Jesus better. Trying to follow Jesus more in my own life. If I think I need it, I think all of us need it. We're in this together. Surely we're in this together. So I spent the days trying to muse upon the Lord, trying to think of Him more, once, more than the once in the morning when I have my devotional or, or pray. I, I spent the day trying to reflect upon the Scripture that I was memorizing, like this verse that you heard Ellis give to us today, Colossians 3.17. And I spent my day trying to see the crowds through the eyes of Christ. Not as my travel competitors, but as the beloved for whom he died. It changes your attitude towards even the most obnoxious people when you look at them in the face and say, Christ loved you. Christ died for you. It changes your heart, your attitude towards them. And it has continued to transform my discipleship. So that was my sabbatical. Repent and follow. That was my summer. That's how Jesus started his early, his earthly ministry. And then last week, we're still reviewing. I told you, we got some work to do, but hang in there with me. And then last week, I took us to the end of Jesus' ministry. Remember? Matthew chapter 28. The start and the end. And in the end, he preaches what we call the great what? The great commission. And the heart of the great commission was another command. It was go and make what? disciples. Go and make disciples. Now that you have followed me, now that you have caught a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of heaven, I want you to make other followers of me. Brothers and sisters, this is significant. We've got to get this. Jesus could have defined discipleship in terms of just me following him. He could have defined discipleship in terms of me being obedient to the Lord. And so in that case, his great commission was, I charge you to follow in all of my ways until I come back for you. But that's not what he said. He said, now that you know what it means to be my disciple, I want you to go out into all the world and teach others to follow me. It's not just about you. It is about the world that I love, the world I created, the world I died for, the world I came to redeem. It's about them too. So spread the word. Make more disciples, Jesus says. This definition of discipleship then must be about more than just following Jesus. 
It also must be about replicating yourself, about making other disciples, about making spiritual children and spiritual grandchildren. Discipleship is not just repent and follow. It is repent, follow, go, and make. The first half, following Jesus faithfully, is obviously essential. But so is the second half. Now, go and make others. And if we only do the first part, repent and follow, then we're half-baked disciples. We have not completed that discipleship circle to which the Lord has called us. A faithful, this is what I want you to hear, a faithful definition of discipleship must include both of these things. Follow Christ and help others to follow Christ. Do you see that? Do you see that? And the Apostle Paul defines it as clearly as you could in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what he says. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. How many of you would feel comfortable saying to someone else, imitate me? It would make us a little uncomfortable, wouldn't it? But not if you're doing the first part, the second part. Not if you're imitating Christ. If we're able to say, listen, see what I'm doing? I'm, see how I'm following Jesus? See how I'm trying to be obedient to him? Do that too. Come along and do that with me too. That is what real disciple making is. Not just pouring the Bible into someone's head. Not just giving them good theology, although we have to do that. But also living in a way that aligns your words and your deeds. Remember the memory verse that that Ellis gave to us earlier in the service. Colossians 3.17. I want you to memorize this verse. We're going to be living in this verse. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do it again with me. Go. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That is discipleship. That is the essence of it. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It is a very gutsy thing to say, isn't it? But it is also very clarifying because it causes me to ask the question, dare I say it? Would I say what Paul said? Could I say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? It is the totality of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To imitate Christ in every way and then to invite others to follow your lead. And we are going to adopt this as our working definition of disciple. So another little thing that you're going to get to memorize in the weeks to come. A disciple is someone who dares to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. A disciple is someone who dares to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Say it. Go ahead and read it with me. A disciple is someone who dares to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Our longing as a leadership team is that every single person in this church will adopt this daunting definition of discipleship that is not just all about them, but it is also about the next spiritual generation for their own discipleship, realizing only by the Holy Spirit can we pull this off. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now here, I'm going to pause and say, I know that there are going to be some here, even this morning, who are going to say, that sounds too hard. I'm not interested. It sounds too radical. It sounds too revolutionary. And you're going to take a pass. I'm not interested in 
in this kind of radical transformation. I like my Christianity in my little corner of its world. And you'll pass. And beloved, if that's you, that is just so bad, too bad. Because you're going to miss out on what it's like for the kingdom of heaven to break into your life and into the life of others. But I'll bet most of us here are going to be thrilled to accept this audacious challenge. To learn what it means to live like Christ by His Holy Spirit and then invite others to come along and do the same. There is no other way to live that offers more real joy, peace, contentment, significance than that as a true disciple of Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So if you're game, and I hope you are, here's the plan for the next couple of years. We're going to spend this year talking about what it means to imitate Christ. Starting with the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to dig into what it really means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. And then a year from now, then we are going to really launch into the second half of it. Imitate me. What does it mean to invite someone into a Christ-imitating relationship with me? That's scary. That's daunting. What are the tools? How do we do it? We're going to help you. If you'll walk faithfully with us, if you will be here week by week, we're going to walk through this in a couple of years. I think we are going to be astounded to see what happens when we imitate Christ, invite others to join us, and we see the kingdom of heaven breaking through. That is our plan for the next couple of years. And I hope you're game to be a part of that. And so we begin this morning with the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to begin at the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Here's why. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, here's what's at stake. All this stuff that I've just preached to you, all the stuff I've just taught to you, all of these intimidating, challenging transformational, radical, revolutionary things that I've just laid out before you, here's how much they matter. Here's what is at stake. I believe if you understand how serious this matter is from the beginning, then when we begin to launch into the actual language of the, of the sermon, you're going to pay very close attention because you'll understand how much it mattered to Christ, who is the Lord. So this morning we start, Matthew chapter 7, and I want to ask you to do so, as we're reading through this, I want to ask you to do so with this question in mind. What did Jesus expect us to do with his teachings? What did Jesus expect his listeners to do with his teachings? Turn to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You'll find it on page 818. Here then is the word of the Lord, the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, anytime you see a therefore, you've got to wonder what it's there for. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall 
because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Last month we were standing in the car rental return line at Heathrow Airport in London. We were standing ready to be checked out and I suddenly heard a voice behind me cry out, Mark Toon? And I knew the voice immediately. It was a friend of mine, an elder in the EPC church up at Kent. His name is Scott in the rental car right behind us in line at Heathrow Airport in London. What are the odds? It was completely out of context. But the moment I heard that voice, it was familiar to me. It rang true to me. I wonder, when you hear the following words that I'm going to read for you, if it isn't the same, they may be out of context, but the minute you hear them, They ring true for you. You recognize them. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Ask and it will be. Seek and you will. Knock and it will be. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, offer him your left as well. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just judge not. Take the log out of your own eye. Do unto others. You know them all. Why? Because these are treasures. These are treasures. You have grown with them. These are the great treasures of our Christian faith. I want to ask my question again. What did Jesus expect us to do with these teachings? Admire them? Admire them for their timeless beauty? Or perhaps pick and choose like a a spiritual smorgasbord among the things that we would like to do and not care so much for? Do unto others. Can't go wrong with that one. Judge not. That's a favorite even among pagans. Those we like, Mm. love your enemies, don't get divorced, Mm. those we don't like so much maybe. What do you think Jesus expected his disciples to do after he delivered his sermon on the mount? Well, here's the good news. He tells us what he expects and we just read it. Did you see it? Chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears those words of mine and what? Puts, say it together, puts them into practice. Wait a second. You mean we're, we're actually supposed to do this stuff? Jesus expects us to actually live the Sermon on the Mount? To obey Him? Yes, He does, as a matter of fact. 
And he says it even more clearly and more starkly in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Take a look, long, hard look at that sentence because it's going to spin your world. He's saying just because you say that Jesus is your Lord doesn't mean you're going to heaven. That's what he says. Only those who actually do the will of the Father, he says, will go. And this is disturbing. This is world spinning, especially for us evangelical types. After all, is it one of our core teachings that we cannot work our way into heaven? That it's not about being good enough to earn God's forgiveness? That it's all about grace? Yes, absolutely true. Our salvation is all about God's grace shown to us in Christ. We come to Him in our sin and brokenness. Jesus says, I welcome you. I will clean you up. I will redeem you. I will take you with me to heaven. That is the wondrous grace of His gospel. But it is a grace that must not be presumed upon. And we American evangelicals presume upon the grace of God. We have come to believe and act as if all we must do is say the prayer, ask Jesus to be our Savior, and then we are a shoe-in for heaven. Then we can go about living our lives any old way that we want to. Dallas Willard, who always rocks my world, he's one of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, He calls this barcode Christianity. He says you get your barcode slapped on your forehead when you accept Jesus. And as long as you can get scanned at the pearly gates, you're in. It doesn't matter if you, if the disciple looks anything like the master. If you've got your barcode, you are in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung for his faith by the Nazis, had a a phrase for this kind of presumption. Do you know what he called it? Cheap grace. Say it. Cheap grace. And more importantly, Jesus condemns it right here as spiritual delusion. Who gets into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus asks, the one who does the will of my Father. The one who builds his life upon the rock of me. Who hears my words and does what? Puts them into practice. That's who gets into heaven. Now, I don't want to confuse you. I spent the entire book of Galatians trying to dispel the myth of the myth of American religion that says, if I try harder to be good, if I'm at least better than the next guy, God is going to grade on the curve and I'm going to make it to heaven. Our salvation is not about something that we earn. But our salvation always leads to obedience. We are saved because we trust Jesus and we invite His Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. But then we are called to participate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He doesn't impose that change upon us any more than He imposed the salvation upon us in the first place. Our efforts do not save us. But if we are no different from the world we turned away from... If we do not look more and more like the Jesus we claim to follow, then it casts doubt on whether Jesus really is the Lord of our lives. And make no mistake about it, there's no such thing as having Jesus as our Savior but not our Lord. 
That's another American religious lie. Some people say, yes, I asked him into my life as my savior that I'm still working on the Lord thing. Of course, all of us are still working on the Lord thing. If by that you mean the things in your life that are not yet completely surrendered to Christ, like my travel behavior. But, when the, but, the, but Lord and Savior are not separable terms. They have a hyphen, a dash. It is precisely Christ the Lord who is able to be for us Christ our Savior. We cannot have a Savior who is not our Lord. No Lord, no Savior. How then do we know if Christ is the Lord, our master, our boss? How do we know? We know it the same way we know whether anyone is our boss. Why? By whether or not we do what he says. Jesus in what I consider to be, he could not have put it more clearly than in Luke six forty six, One of my favorite, most awful, most convicting verses of all. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Do you hear the irony, the painful irony in his question? So right here, beloved, is the starting point of our journey into deeper discipleship. Obedience. These words of Jesus, these words that we're going to study in the coming weeks, they aren't something just to admire or to remember fondly or to ponder. They are to obey. You cannot claim Christ as your Lord if you do not obey Him. Or to come back to our definition of disciple, we must imitate Christ, what He says we say. What He does, we do. Where He goes, we go. Not perfectly, of course, not every time. And when we fail, we will fall before Him. We will beg His forgiveness. He will stand us back up, fill us once again with His gracious Holy Spirit. And He said, I do forgive you. Try again. This is the question that must guide us in the weeks to come as we study the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. Am I willing to bow my knee before Jesus in everything? Hard as it is, whatever it may be, am I willing to obey Him? If you say, yes, I am willing, God help me, then you're a disciple of Jesus. If you say, no, I am not willing, I like going my own way, then sadly you are not yet a disciple of Jesus, whatever you claim to be. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Last week I introduced us to a time of musing. Thank you. This is something that was a significant spiritual practice for me this summer, pausing throughout the day to pay attention to God, to ask what he's trying to say to me, what is working in me. And we started with 20 seconds last week of silence. I want to give you some tools to help us grow in our ability to muse upon the Lord. So pull this out, you'll find this here. I want to just spend again 20, 30 seconds, and I invite you to take this, to read these questions, to Consider the one that really speaks to your heart, maybe to jot it down. Take it home with you. Keep this before you so that when we dash out the doors of amnesia, we won't forget the thing that God wants to do with us. So pull this out if you would. Take a look at the questions around the outside edge. Consider which of the ones, which is the question that is 
touching me right now. What is the Holy Spirit trying to say? Jot some things down, and then I'm going to pray. So time of silence. Holy Spirit, this is a hard thing to which you have called us, but it is a rich thing and a good thing. We want to know what it means to live our life as if the kingdom were here right now. It is so close, and yet some of us are walking in the wrong direction, and if we were to just turn and follow you, Jesus, there it would be. Many of us have grown up thinking that these are things to nice things to know about and talk about and ponder, but the idea that we would actually obey you <laughs> whatever you tell us to do, we would obey you. Somehow it has escaped us. Would you remind us that it is only we who do the will of the Father that will know you and and join you in heaven. So God, would you please help us as we muse upon our own lives and where we are to take this seriously and to give ourselves to this as if it were the most important thing we have ever attended to, for that is what it is. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Let's sing together. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that None of this is possible if the Holy Spirit will not empower us. So would you raise your hands in surrender? Near the end of it, I'm going to add a little bit to our benediction and invite you to join me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His perfect peace. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's obedient disciples said,